North Shore Baptist Church, friends, I have great news for you today. Jesus, the King, is willing to accept bad people and to bless them. This might be surprising news for you today. This might even be scandalous sounding news for you today. That Jesus Christ, the King, is willing to accept bad people and to bless them. Our text for today is an Old Testament passage, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 23, that presents this very thesis, that Jesus the King is willing to accept bad people and to bless them. It presents this thesis in three movements, the pollution of the people, the grace of God, and Christ the coming King. So let me read for you the whole text Please grab a copy of God's word and open it to Haggai chapter 2 and follow along as I read. And then once I've read the whole text, I'll go back and unpack each of these three movements in the passage. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother." On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, we thank you for your word. Please grant us in this meeting today to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you have planted in these words for our heart. Please open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Show him to us that we might be changed, that we might be made clean, 
that we might be acceptable to you through him. Lord, communicate to us today, even as I speak. Lord, may your power be made perfect in weakness, that your name would be glorified among this people seated here today. Uh, We ask this for your glory and through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is movement number one, the pollution of the people. The text in this book, Haggai, is about a particular people, the nation of Israel. But as God deals with them, we are to be instructed by it. The history of the Bible is the history of God's dealing with mankind. Yet for much of the, the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, he focuses his revelation through one particular people. And he does this for the purpose of precisely presenting who he is and what he is like. And so where are we here in the life of this particular people, this people of Israel? Well, we are post-exile. God chose these people. He delivered them out of Egypt. He brought them into a land. He made them great for his glory, and they turned on him. They worshiped idols. They went away from his word. They broke his covenant. And what God did, according to the covenant that he made with them, is that he brought other nations to come in and to terrify them and to destroy them and to carry them out into a foreign land. But God had promised that he would not utterly cast them off, that he would, by his power, in his time, bring a remnant back into the land. And in Haggai, we have a record of God's dealing with this remnant. God has already kept his promise and brought some people back into the land, and now he's dealing with these people very specifically. The book of Haggai is a book of four prophecies to this people, four times that God speaks to the remnant through the prophet Haggai. Prophecy number one, which is in chapter one, the Lord chastises this people for ignoring the building of the temple. He brought them back in the land to establish his worship, and they were ignoring even that, building their own homes, neglecting the house of the Lord. And he speaks to them to chastise them, and and they go back to building. In the second prophecy, in the beginning of chapter two, the Lord gives encouragement to those who are downcast who are remembering the former glory of Israel and the greatness of the temple and who are now sad because the new temple they're building looks very small. They're unsure of even the relevance of this project. And the way that God encourages them in the second prophecy is through his presence and through the word of his promise. So now we are two months after that second prophecy. We're two months after the encouragement. And so today we'll hear two more prophecies from Haggai that occur on the same date. So let's look at the first one in chapter 2, verse 10 to 14. This is what the Lord says to them on the 24th day of the ninth month. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment or touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. 
Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. This is the point of the first prophecy, the pollution of the people. The people are unclean. Everything that they do, everything that they offer there is unclean. It's unacceptable. It's not pleasing to God. That's the point. The people are unclean. We could just leave this point. But I don't think it would be fair to the text to leave the point without showing you how God illustrated this to his people. He uses examples out of the Jewish ceremonial code, which is why he says to Haggai, ask the priests about the law. Ask the ones who are supposed to know my word and uphold my word what my word says. And so the first question refers to the law concerning the meat of the sin offering as part of Holy God's covenant with Israel, he instituted sacrifices. And these sacrifices were meant to picture the fact that sin requires death. The wages of sin is death. But you, my people, who are sinners, can offer up to me a bull or a ram or some kind of clean sacrifice. And as you offer that up to me, that animal will stand in your place and you will receive forgiveness of sins. And an interesting aspect of this sin offering is that once it was killed and the special parts of the animal were burned, some of the meat was kept and given to the priests. The priests, who were supposed to be the intermediaries between the people and God, got to eat some of the holy sin offering, which also pictured the fact that these men were holy unto the Lord and sustained completely by him. Now, you can read in Leviticus 6.27, one of the laws about this holy meat was that anything that touched the meat became holy. Anything that touched the meat of this sin offering then was set apart for God and could not be used for any other purpose. Holiness was transmitted by the touching of the sin offering. But the question for the priest is, if a man's holding this holy meat in his garment and he touches something with his garment, does that thing become holy? And the priests say, no. There is no secondhand transmission of holiness. The garment touches the meat. The garment itself is holy. But if you take that garment and you touch some, some food or some wine or some oil or some stew, that stuff does not become holy. Holiness is not transmitted very easily. The sin offering itself must be touched to confer holiness. The second question is about uncleanness. As God gave the law to Israel, there were things and acts that were unclean, meaning that if you had done them or you had touched them, you could not enter into the presence of God to worship him and to serve him. And one of these things was a dead body, touching a dead body. And the question in verse 13 says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, any of these foods, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. There's no secondhand transfer of holiness, but there is secondhand transfer of uncleanness. The dead body was unclean. 
The man touches the dead body and becomes unclean. He goes and touches some food or some wine or some stew. Does it become unclean? Yeah. And if you look in Numbers 20, if someone touched the food or the stuff that the unclean person touched, they also become unclean. There is no secondhand transference of holiness, but uncleanness is passed very easily. Pollution spreads, and the people have become unclean. God called Israel to holiness. He says to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And yet they have become defiled. Not from touching a dead body necessarily, but because of their sin. Because of their disobedience of the holy God, they are defiled, and everything that they touch has become defiled. They are unclean, and everything that they offer, all of their works, all of their sin offerings, all of their sacrifices are unclean and unacceptable. This is not just an Israel problem. God called humanity to holiness. He created us in his own image, which is to represent him and be his representatives in the world, representing his holiness. But we have become defiled through sin and disobedience. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're missing the mark. We're not hitting our purpose. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the first and greatest commandment. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. Nobody's making it. Even as you might pursue in your own mind being a good person, your tendency is, rather than to listen to the word of God and do what he says is good, to figure out in your own mind what you think is good and honorable and acceptable and to do that. Right? You might not seem that bad to yourself or to other people. You might have a very good reputation. But when you consider the greatness and the glory and the holiness of the one who created us for his glory, and you consider the audacity of a dust-formed creature to reject the instruction and guidance of his creator you will begin to see how foolish, how disgusting, and how dirty sin is. And we're filled with it. We're covered in it. And boy, does it spread. You ever, you ever spill oil in a bag? Like you're coming home from the supermarket, you got the big jar of Wesson, you put it down on the floor too hard, it kind of cracks. Maybe, maybe the seal was broken a little bit. Or you had some WD-40 or motor oil in the back of your car in a bag, and it kind of opens up a little bit. And you open the bag, and it's over everything, right? Everything in the bag you touch is slippery and sticky and nasty. And so you get to work, you're wiping stuff down, you're putting stuff away in the cabinets, it's getting on your clothes because it's on your fingers, and finally you think that you're done. You finally think you covered it all. Then a couple months later, you go in the cabinet and you grab that can of soup and you touch the bottom and you're like, oh, that's that oil. I missed it. 
You thought it was clean, but that oil spread everywhere. It's kind of what like, sin is like in our lives. It just covers and spreads and affects everything, makes everything gross and a little sticky and slimy and nasty. It's what the Lord's illustrating about sin here. In the New Testament, Romans 5 really highlights this, how in the human experience from the very beginning, sin has just been spreading. And it starts with the first man, Adam. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man because of the spread of sin. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That one sin, that one bottle of oil just corrupts it all. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The oil has spread through the bag, and we are covered in it. To get off the oil, got to use that good soap. Right? What can wash away the oil of sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. To cleanse the defilement of sin, you must use blood. To be counted holy in the eyes of God, you must touch the holy sin offering, who is Jesus Christ. So now we'll move on to the next few verses of Haggai, where, where God is speaking to this unclean people and telling them to consider their state. He says, now then, now that I've told you how unclean you all are. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. So we have this word, consider, which literally is set it on your heart. Think about it. Put it right here so you don't forget. <clears throat> and that word brings us back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he tells the people, consider your ways. He tells them three times, consider your ways. Three months ago from where we're at now, there was a call to repentance. The people were neglecting the Lord's house. And God tells them to consider their ways. He points out all of the covenant punishments that he has laid upon them. Your, your fields are not growing. You're trying to collect money and it's disappearing. You are not reaping the strength and the fruit of the land. You know why? Because you're disobedient. And that's why this is happening to you. 
And now he's re-emphasizing those same things, but with a new goal. The first time, he tells them to consider his ways and their, and their discipline is so that they would turn from being neglectful and they would start building the temple. He wanted them to move in the right direction, so he tells them to consider. This time, the consideration that he's giving to them is so that he could highlight for them his grace. He's highlighting his grace, which brings us to the second movement, the grace of God. What is grace? We sang an awful lot of songs about it this morning. What is grace? It is undeserved favor. As I teach my kids, grace is getting good things that you don't deserve. Getting good things that you don't deserve. The, the second point of this prophecy is that this unclean, disobedient people is about to get a blessing from God. Verse 19, but from this day, consider it, from this day, I will bless you. Why is this good thing about to happen to these bad people? It's because God is gracious. The blessing that they're about to get is not because of their obedience. Verse 17 reminds them of this. He says, remember, I struck you with all the covenant promises that I promised, and you did not turn to me. You might think, didn't the people obey the Lord? Right? Doesn't chapter 1, verse 12 say that the people turned and started building the temple? Well, they did, but that turning, that building was not of themselves. Verse, chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Lord stirred up their spirits. They weren't sitting there and saying, You know what? Things are going pretty bad for us, and, and I think we have just offended God. We should love the Lord our God and build his temple. No, he had to come and do a work in them by his spirit to turn them to obedience. And even now that they've started building the temple... They are still not wholly dedicated to the Lord. How do I know this? Because God says, y'all are unclean. You are unacceptable. But I got a second clue. In Zechariah chapter 1, when you look at it, it says this is in the eighth month, the second year of Darius. So this is after the building starts. This is about a month before we're at right now when he declares the people unclean. After they started building the temple again, there's a call to repentance. Hear it. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, this people, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord." So this people who has turned to start building the temple still need a repentance call because their hearts are not directed to Yahweh as they ought. Building of the temple was good. It was the Lord's will that they build the temple. 
But because of their sin, the building itself was not meritorious. The Lord was not standing in the heavens go, you go, my people. Thank you for building my temple. He had to do that. And I think this is what the prophet is getting at in 1819. This building is not meritorious. Right? Consider from the day that the foundation was laid. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, none of your fruit trees have borne anything yet. He's saying to them, remember from this day, as we move forward from this day, this 24th day of the ninth month, I want you to remember the past. Since the temple was begun, nothing has changed for you. Still, to this very day, you are under my covenant punishments because of your sin. But I'm about to bring you a blessing. This blessing is wholly undeserved. It's not because you earned it. It's not because now you've begun to build the temple that you are worthy of my blessing. It's my grace. Remember that. Why is this this the focus? Why is this the thing that God has spoken to his prophet to communicate to his people? It's because the blessings of God on an unclean and undeserving people warrant the praise of his glorious grace. God's blessing on an unclean, very bad people warrant the praise of his glorious grace. And that is the point of the entire biblical story. It is God's revealing of himself as the almighty triune God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Why? So that the people who have eyes to see him and enjoy that would resound to his praise. Let praise rise up and overflow my song resound forever because God is gracious. The New Testament picks this up. And explains this, I think, most clearly in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the point. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That's what it's all about. The praise of God's grace. And it's the same book, Ephesians, that points out this purpose of all things to be to the praise of God's glory where we find a call for God's people to consider from this day onward. From today on, remember the past. You were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. We all once lived among it, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The grace is not for boasting. The grace is for praising. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So consider from this day onward. Remember what pain, what perplexity, what despair, and what darkness the Lord came and drug you out of. Drug you out like a drowning baby out of the ocean. He came and drug you out, dug you out like a man buried alive. He delivered you with the same power and might with which he destroyed the Egyptian deities and divided the waters of the sea and led his people out of slavery on dry ground. And not because you did anything to deserve it, but because he decided to do it, to display to you his grace, that you might know him and love him and enjoy him for who he is and what he's done forever. It's all about his grace. It's all about his work. This is why we are so adamant and outspoken about the doctrines of grace. It's because we see in Scripture that this is the very understanding. It's this understanding of God's free, unearned, irresistible, unfailing grace that is the very thing that God intends to most powerfully promote the praise of his people and to most precisely picture for us the greatness of his glory. Must have grace to see the great glory of God. And this glory, the glory of this God who acts with no outward constraints, who acts not based on the works of his people, but upon his own goodness and mercy and compassion, which spans the scripture from beginning to end, takes a face, presents in a person, Jesus Christ, the King. Which brings us to movement number three. Christ, the coming King. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, son, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nation and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, maybe you're a little confused right now. I got you all excited about Jesus, and here the scripture turns to some man named Zerubbabel. Well, let me bring you into the mind of the original hearers. So this prophecy parallels, in a way, the one that was in chapter 2, verse 2 to 6. In that part, for the first time, we hear of the shaking of the heavens and the earth and the shaking of the nations. Primary emphasis there is on the temple, that God in his power was going to come and was going to do a mighty work that would eclipse anything they had ever heard or ever seen, and he was going to bring peace in that 
place. Now, in our text, the Lord again uses this cataclysmic language, shaking of the heavens and the old, overturning of thrones and kingdoms. The focus here, though, is not the temple. The focus here is on the utter and complete defeat of the enemy of God and his people. Verse 22, I'm to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdom of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. This language would bring to mind the mighty works of God that he did in the past to display his power and to bring deliverance to his people, most notably the deliverance from Egypt, the Passover. He brought his people through on dry ground, and as Pharaoh changes his mind and comes with his people and his horses and his chariots, the Lord of all takes the sea, closes it on him, and delivers his people. And then the people sing, Praise the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. And they would have heard this language, and they would have remembered that story and said, Oh, that's my God. My God is about to do something for us. It would also have recalled the deliverance of Israel from Midian in Judges 7. If you can remember a couple months back in Judges, Gideon and his 300 men come up against this massive Midianite army, but he comes with the accompaniment of the Lord. And what does Gideon and his army do? They have some lamps and they have some vases and they break the lamps and they raise the lights and they shout, A sword for Gideon, a sword for the Lord. And what happens in the camp? All the Midianite soldiers start slashing and attacking and killing one another. And what that does is to show that the deliverance of God's people is not by the hand of God's people. It's not by the power of his weak vessels. It's by his power. And he says it again. It's going to happen. Right? Everyone is going to fall, each one by the sword of his brother. And they would have thought, oh, it's about, this, it's about to happen. This has happened a couple times in their history. In 1 Samuel 14, they came against the Philistines. How did they win? Philistines start killing one another. In Egypt, in Isaiah 19.2, the Lord is prophesying that there's going to be victory again. He says the Egyptians are just going to start fighting one another. Ezekiel 31.21, a nation called Gog, he said, you know how you're going to win? Every man's going to fall by the sword of his brother. And in Zechariah 14, 13, it says that all those who wage war against Jerusalem, against the people of God, will all fall, each man by the sword of his brother. And all these scriptures, as the Lord is making this prophecy once again, would have came to the mind of those who knew the word, and they would have said, oh, the Lord is girding on his armor. The Lord is getting ready to go to battle for us. Right? And this displays God's impervious will. His unstoppable power. Those of you who are brothers or had brothers or have seen brothers. You ever seen the thing that an older brother does to a younger brother? He just grabs him by the wrist and lays him on a couch. And he goes, psh, psh, psh. Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Psh, psh, psh. Right? And just make him hit himself in the face. Maybe older sisters do this too. It's, it's probably happened. Right, the older brother or whoever, the bigger friend is just exercising dominance. And there's nothing that the little one can do. And this is the picture that the Lord is presenting to his people. This is what I am going to do to your enemies. You're done. 
imagine what comfort the people could have took in that. This people that have been exiled, defeated, disciplined, and subjugated under the rules of other nations. Right At this time, it's the Persians. Then it's going to be the Greeks. And then it's going to be the Romans. They got no place. They got very little provision. And the person that's ruling over them is a pagan. And so this is why God turns to Zerubbabel in the hearing of the people and says, On that day, on that day when I exercise my dominance over the nations, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let me give you sort of a modern translation what the people would have heard in their minds as they received this prophecy. On that day, Israel, when I lay waste to all your enemies, I will restore a king from my people on the throne of David. This prophecy to Zerubbabel here is a prophecy which points forward to the coming king, Jesus Christ. Here's the clues. This is why you can understand it this way. One, he calls Zerubbabel my servant. In the book of Isaiah, from another prophet, the servant of the Lord is the one who is the deliverer of God's people. And God says, I'm going to put my spirit on him, and he's going to bring forth judgment, my servant. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises to David that he's going to make him a sure house and that he will not lack a man to sit on the throne and his kingdom, his reign will endure forever, forever. This is the promise that he makes to David, my servant. Second clue is this son of Shealtiel language. This is used repeatedly of Zerubbabel in the book of Haggai. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Now, Shealtiel is the son of Jeconiah. Jeconiah, who is alternately called Jehoiakim. Shealtiel was the son of a king who reigned in Jerusalem. Jeconiah was the second to last king. He gets captured by the Babylonians and taken into Babylon. They put his brother Zedekiah on the throne, and then they kill Zedekiah. But the reason why it's so important that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel is to display that he is from royal lineage. He himself is from the line of David. He has a royal title, but he's not ruling. That connects to the next clue is this signet ring idea. Now, a signet ring was a sign of authority. If you'll recall, when when Joseph was thrown into the pit, and then he is taken out, and he interprets the dreams, and Pharaoh makes him ruler over Israel, he gives him his signet ring. Because you have this ring, you have the authority of the king. You exercise all of my power over this nation. The signet ring was representative. Any man might have one by which he could make his mark or set his seal on a document. This is my word. This is my promise. I sign it with my signet. And in Jeremiah 22, the Lord is speaking of Jeconiah, the second to last king of Judah, And the Lord says this, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off 
and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. The Davidic line was God's representatives, but through idolatry, a failure to obey, a failure to recognize God, the Lord says, I'm taking you off. You were like a signet ring, Jeconiah, and if you were a signet ring, I would take you off and I would cast you into the muck because you have failed. And now the Lord comes to Zerubbabel and he says, in that day when I exercise dominance over the enemies of my people, Zerubbabel, you're going to be like a signet ring. Remember your granddad? I took him off. But we're going to put it back on. We're going to restore the throne of David. And he says this even in the face of the uncleanness of his people. This people is unclean. But I will bless them, and I'm going to restore a king on the throne of David for their good. The promise to David has not failed. Now, many of the Israelites, probably like you or me, when I read this prophecy for the first time and hadn't studied it more closely, would probably have taken the words of the prophecy more literally. Right? Oh, it's going to be Zerubbabel. He's, he's going to be on the throne. The Lord's going to do this work real soon and overthrow the thrones and the kingdoms and the nations. But not so. Zerubbabel lived and died and never took the throne of Israel. Nations were never defeated before him, and there was no mighty upheaval of the world in his time. But what this prophecy was meant to ignite and to sustain was a hope. A hope that God had not completely cast off this unclean nation that he had not abandoned his promises, that he would in great measure dispense his glorious grace and deliver his people from their enemies. And this prophecy is finally fulfilled in the king who came and who is to come, Jesus Christ. King Jesus has come to bless a bad people. It is he, the Lion of Judah, Descended from Jeconiah and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, who is the rightful king of Israel. And catch that in Matthew 1. It is he, the eternal son of God, who by means of his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, rules forever on the throne of all creation, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of his gracious Father catch that in Philippians 2. It is Jesus, the one who is called faithful and true, who will judge the world in righteousness and make war, who will strike down the nations with the sword that comes from his mouth, Revelation 19. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Where's the throne of the nations now? Overturned. And it is he, the living word of God, who was presented in John chapter 1, who became flesh and dwelt among us, who revealed the Father's glory, being the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. He's the one Israel was to be waiting for. He was to be the hope of this unclean people. He is the means by which God righteously extends forgiveness and love to defiled sinners. 
He is the one that we so desperately need to find acceptance in the eyes of the Lord. And he is indeed willing to accept us and to bless us as our king. So I have some closing applications as we consider these truths. Three, for those who have not yet touched Christ, and four, for those who have. So first, for for the unbelieving. One, you cannot depend on your good works for acceptance with God because they are unclean. The Apostle Paul says, I find it a law that whenever I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is true for Christians, too. But if you're, even if you're not consciously, like, ill-motivated, even if you don't feel you're not plotting or scheming, a little pride, a little grumbling, a little self-interest defiles the whole work. And anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, you might see this in, in people who, who are God people. Uh, they believe in God. They want to obey the Ten Commandments in some sort of kind of way. But they don't, they don't pay any attention to his word. Uh, they don't receive Christ as king. Those little things that they don't like in his word, they kind of say, no, not that. That's, that's not cleanliness. That's, that's not obedience to God. Those works are not received. Don't rely on your good works for acceptance with God. Two, don't think that your current blessings are rewards for good works. Right? There are people who are walking around that think because they have a roof over their head and they can put food in their kids' mouths and they got a nice car or whatever they've got. Oh, this must be because I'm doing good. Scripture says God makes his sun rise and his rain to fall on the evil and the good, on the just and the unjust. God is so gracious that even if you don't acknowledge him, even if you're going to face judgment in the final day, he's still just throwing out these common grace blessings to all kinds of people. But no one deserves any of them. So don't think that your current blessings are rewards for your good work. And third application for those who are unbelieving is that you ought to acknowledge the king. Acknowledge the king. Jesus, the king, is willing to accept bad people and to bless him. Bless them. There is only one way that you may be acceptable and only one way for you to be purified of your uncleanness. There is only one way that you can partake of the fullness of the grace of God. And that is coming under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing in him as he is revealed in his holy word and living a life of repentance, a turning away from sin and faith in him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to the king. And he will make your paths straight. For my brothers and sisters, four application points for the saints of God. First, acknowledge the king. Our inherent impurity causes us regularly to look away from him. To sort of forget about his rule and his judgments and his desires. And as this happens, we do harm to ourselves. We do harm to others. And we do harm to the testimony of God's saving and sanctifying grace that he intends through us. He says in the new covenant, I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to make you careful to obey all my laws. Why? So he can vindicate his name among the nations. When we walk in disobedience, we defame the king. 
And so as you think today back on where the Savior King called you from, live towards him in thanksgiving and honor and obedience, for he has earned it. It is owed to him, our obedience and our love and our thanksgiving. Second application is humbly do good works. Humbly do good works. We were called by God, saved in Christ Jesus for good works, and we should do them. Now Isaiah, the prophet, says that all our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? We can't cleanse ourselves by our good works. They are not meritorious. But because we are connected to Jesus Christ, by his blood, our works are purified for the service of God that others might see them and give glory to our Father in heaven, and that we might one day hear the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. But that commendation truly belongs not to us, but to the one who saved us and prepared us for these good works. There is no Christian who should or could rightly boast in their own works. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Number three, don't be discouraged when blessing does not immediately follow obedience. Don't be discouraged when when you start to obey the Lord, when you turn in repentance, that, that outward blessings are not just showering down upon you. None of your obedience is meritorious. God doesn't have to give you anything for anything that you do. God distributes blessings as he will. And sometimes he may test to see if you're obeying For the sake of blessings, or whether you're obeying because you recognize him as the king and he deserves it. God promises that he is working all things to the good of his people, to the ultimate blessing of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But don't think or live before God as if it's some kind of quid pro quo relationship. That as I obey, then the Lord ought to give me X, Y, Z blessing that I've been longing for. Our life is not one of this for that with God. It's one of faith and trust. And finally, number four, don't despair when you fall into a moment or a season of disobedience. Don't despair. Jesus the King is willing to accept bad people and to bless them. You may repent and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and find acceptance with God. You must repent and receive the lordship of Jesus Christ to find acceptance with God. You cannot, as a professing believer, persist in disobedience. But you can turn from disobedience and find full acceptance in Jesus Praise be to God for his glorious grace that gives good blessings to bad people. Father, thank you for your glorious grace, for the testimony of your grace that comes to us in your word. Thank you for eyes to see it and ears to hear it and a heart that rejoices in it. I thank you for the saints of God that you have saved and called to enjoy this and to praise you. I pray that those who have not yet touched your son, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would turn 
and see you and run after you and submit to you and find acceptance through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiveness for all their sins, Lord, that your name would be praised and hallowed forever and ever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.